The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 10th. In today's news, Joe Biden chips away at Bernie Sanders' edge with white working class voters. Two Marines are killed during an operation against ISIS in Iraq. And Democratic hopes of winning the Senate got a boost, but it's still a heavy lift. First, though, the big idea. Donald Trump confronted one of the most perilous days of his presidency on Monday by first erupting in a barrage of commentary that failed to calm the cratering financial markets, struggling to inspire confidence that his administration could stop the spread of the novel coronavirus. But by the time the sun set in Washington, Trump sounded momentarily chastened by the turbulence, and he previewed a raft of emergency measures to shore up the economy. Responding to days of mounting pressure from Wall Street executives and congressional allies, Trump announced that he plans to visit the Capitol today to ask Congress to cut payroll taxes and provide relief to hourly workers suffering from the fallout of the coronavirus. He also said he will seek to provide assistance to the airline, hotel, and cruise industries, which are all suffering as Americans rapidly cancel travel plans. During a meeting with the nation's governors Monday afternoon in the White House Situation Room, Vice President Pence and his team tried to assuage their concerns and explain how states could seek emergency federal funds or provide guidelines on school closures and quarantines, which they anticipate only the hardest-hit communities might need. Afterward, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, expressed dismay that Trump's statements sometimes conflict with the information that he's getting from the rest of the administration behind closed doors. Inside the White House, some officials privately acknowledged that Trump has exacerbated the problem with his misleading and false statements, as well as his callous comments, such as saying last Friday night that he hoped infected cruise passengers would stay aboard the Grand Princess at sea because he doesn't want domestic corona case numbers to rise. Markets plummeted yesterday amid the global alarm over a recession that's possible because of the coronavirus and a showdown over oil prices. The Dow average fell more than 2,000 points, roughly 7.8%. It was the worst drop for stocks since the beginning of the 2008 recession. Aid said Trump has resisted taking dramatic action because he was fearful of causing more alarm among investors. But the market tanking spooked him, and he changed course after aides presented him with a menu of options that they said could help solve the market crashing. Members of Trump's coronavirus task force have also discussed declaring a national emergency, something Trump is hesitant to do but amenable to, according to inside sources. Reducing the payroll tax by a single percentage point, which is what Trump wants, would cut between $55 billion and $75 billion in revenue. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, the Democrat from Maryland, expressed skepticism about the idea last night. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer held their own news conference to say they're going to propose legislation that provides free coronavirus testing for all Americans, paid leave for those affected by the epidemic, expanded food subsidies, and an expansion of the federal unemployment insurance program to the neediest. Still, other senior Democrats say it's inevitable that Washington's going to have to step in with measures to stimulate the economy. And even as Trump continued to gladhand constituents and attend fundraisers in Florida, two Republican congressmen who interacted with him in recent days 
Doug Collins from Georgia and Matt Gates from Florida, said Monday that they are quarantining themselves because of contact with a confirmed carrier of the coronavirus at the Conservative Political Action Conference. And Congressman Mark Meadows, the Republican from North Carolina, who was named on Friday night as Trump's new White House chief of staff, replacing Mick Mulvaney, announced yesterday that he, too, is isolating himself after coming in contact with the same still unidentified person. A seventh lawmaker, Louis Gohmert, the Republican from Texas, said he possibly had been exposed to the carrier at CPAC. But after discussing his situation with a physician, he's decided to return to work. That's alarmed some of his colleagues on the Hill. Meanwhile, in Europe, Italy is now under a total nationwide lockdown. The prime minister there says the government will restrict freedom of movement on a scale unprecedented in a democracy, locking down the entire country of 60 million people in an attempt to contain the accelerating coronavirus. If Italy succeeds, a version of its tactics could be used in other countries where cases are multiplying, including across Europe, where cross-border movement is a cherished right for many citizens. Meanwhile, in China, leader Xi Jinping made a surprise visit to Wuhan, the city where the outbreak emerged, and asserted that China has triumphed in its war against the epidemic. And Japan just announced that it will punish anyone who resells face masks for a profit with up to a year in prison. Closer to home, the number of people stricken with the virus in the D.C. area rose overnight. Three new cases were reported in the district, one in Prince George's County, Maryland, and two in Virginia. The number of known cases in the D.C. metro is now 16. The Securities and Exchange Commission overnight asked employees at its D.C. headquarters to stay away from the office today because of a potential coronavirus case. That makes them the first major federal employer to turn to telework to avoid the spreading virus. The late night email said an employee was treated for respiratory symptoms earlier in the day and was informed by a physician that the person could have the virus. The worker hadn't been in the office since Thursday. And school closures, including three in the district, are raising concerns about the disruption. More than 380 schools nationwide have closed their doors because of this outbreak, moves that affect about 260,000 students. Many of the closures were just for a day or two, so workers could deep clean schools where officials worried about exposure. Many others, heeding the advice of the Education Department and the CDC, were preparing for potentially long-term closures. Some systems closed schools in order to train teachers and prepare lesson plans in case students need to learn remotely. U.S. school officials in many places are grappling with how to proceed here, weighing the potential benefits of closures and slowing the spread against the severe disruption it causes, particularly for students who rely on schools for meals or who have parents who would struggle to find childcare. There are also questions of how effective school closures are in slowing down the spread of the disease, especially if people are going to congregate elsewhere anyway and still pass the illness on to one another outside of school. Universities are scrambling as well. In recent days, many colleges have upended academic traditions in an effort to protect health on campus in the face of an uncertain threat. Classes at Princeton, for example, will be held online, and students are even being encouraged to consider staying home after the upcoming spring break. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, I'm coming to you this morning from Detroit, Michigan. Last night, I covered a Joe Biden rally here where he was introduced by Kamala Harris and Cory Booker earlier in the afternoon. I went to a roundtable that Bernie Sanders held to talk about the coronavirus. He made the case there that the outbreak is a reason for his Medicare for All plan, and he promised to make whatever vaccine emerges free for everyone. 
Two new polls show Biden handily leading Sanders here in the Wolverine state, but they also showed Hillary Clinton up big four years ago before Bernie's upset. So you've got to take it with a grain of salt. But one of the reasons Biden appears poised to win here is that he's made inroads with a core constituency for Sanders. Exit polls from last week's Super Tuesday contests, in which Biden surged to take a national delegate lead in 110 of 14 states, showed that he beat Sanders among non-college-educated whites by four points. Sanders was winning that group by double digits in a lot of these similar primaries against Clinton four years ago. In Missouri over the weekend, the second biggest prize today, Biden emphasized his working class roots. He held a rally at the National World War I Memorial, where workers from firefighters and electrical unions carefully arrayed behind him in the setting sun. Last night in Detroit, he emphasized his role in the auto bailout that saved that industry during the Great Recession. Number two, two members of a Marine special operations team were killed in Iraq during an operation that was targeting a mountain cave complex that Islamic State militants were using as a hideout. These are the first U.S. combat deaths in that country since last summer. The operation Sunday required the coalition to dispatch reinforcement forces to recover the remains of the Americans who were killed from the caves. It took nearly six hours to do so. The service members' identities are still being withheld as family members are notified. The Iraqi military released a statement saying that at least 25 ISIS fighters were killed and nine tunnels and a training camp were destroyed as part of this operation. A senior U.S. official says there are small cells of Islamic State fighters living in cave complexes isolated from the rest of the Iraqi population. These militants are sustaining themselves through a mix of kidnapping and extortion from nearby communities. In some cases, Islamic State fighters have collected ransoms of up to $70,000. Number three. Democrats are doing everything they can to position themselves to be able to win back the U.S. Senate this November. It'll still be quite tough for them, but they got a big break on Monday when term-limited Montana governor and former 2020 presidential candidate Steve Bullock announced that he is running for Senate there against GOP incumbent Steve Daines, putting up Democrats' strongest candidate to take that seat from Republicans, although Daines definitely still has the edge. The same happened in Colorado when John Hickenlooper, that state's former governor and a former presidential candidate, is running for Senate against Republican Cory Gardner. Those two well-known names have the best chance of probably anyone in their party to win these seats for Democrats. Democrats are also making hard plays to unseat Republicans in Arizona, Maine, North Carolina, and to a lesser extent, Georgia. That's a lot of opportunity for them to win back the majority for the first time since 2014. But the challenge for Democrats comes from the fact that they're coming at a deficit of around five seats, and those tough races aren't guaranteed to provide them five victories. It's also much more likely that they'll lose at least one 2020 race in Alabama than win the others on that list. That's why expanding the map to somewhere like Montana is significant news. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 10th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Don't forget to wash your hands. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>